I'm going to begin with a question, as I often do. The question is this. Do we, as human beings, just need to fix the outside and then the inside will change? If we just change our environment, change our circumstances, that will solve the inside problems we have. Dorothy Sayers, British writer and poet, said that World War II was a terrible blow to the educated class of England, who had an optimistic belief in the civilizing influence of progress and, quote, enlightenment. Progress and enlightenment. That was their confidence, optimistic belief. These were the people who found the appalling outburst of bestial ferocity in the totalitarian states, the obstinate selfishness and stupid greed of capitalist societies, not merely shocking and alar- but alarming. For them, these things are the utter negation of everything in which they had believed. It's as though the bottom had dropped out of their universe when they realized that the outward improvements didn't cure society's ills. They're certainly helpful in many ways, but it didn't cure. In her book, Creed or Chaos, Sayer said that over the previous century and more politics uh, had operated on the following basis. Now pay attention. This is written a long time ago. What was wrong with human society was not in the human heart. It lay in social structures, in a lack of education. It was a lack of applying what we know through science, end quote. What do we merely need to just fill in those gaps and human society will finally achieve greatness, utopia? I think modern history is littered with people who thought capitalism would make us better or socialism would make us better or that communism would finally solve it. Do we just need to fix the outside and then the inside will follow? Well, let me ask this. Where where does this assumption and approach flow from? It certainly assumes, right, a confidence in humanity. No one's debating that. But let's think more inwardly ourselves. What do we know about our tendency towards a, I'll call it a a religious legalism, towards a religious legalism? So are we open to seeing where we may focus on certain visible moral codes based on the assumption that such obedience is a means of gaining divine favor or our own justification? Maybe it's how we do not commit certain sins that others do. Maybe it's how we vote or participate in social activism. Maybe it's how we are very disciplined in our, in our devotions. Uh, maybe it's how we are super involved in our church. Are we focusing on certain visible moral codes with the assumption that such obedience gains divine favor or personal justification? Why does culture or critical theory, critical contemporary theory, man-made religion, and our own patterns reveal we live to, to somehow justify ourselves and feel better about ourselves in those actions? We, we typically today don't see individuals, we typically today still do not see individuals as unclean, defiled, evil. We think human nature is basically good. We want to see social binaries in groups, not just individuals for some reason. We like to see, well, that group over there is bad, but we typically don't really look at individuals. Today, if there's a, if there's a God, we don't believe he is transcendently holy in culture before whom we stand guilty and condemned. That has to be rejected. The the view of anything transcendent has to be taken off the table, off the conversation. It's rejected wholesale. So it leaves us with hope in humanity again and again. We still wrestle with prolonged feelings, though, personally, don't we? 
individuals can talk about their rejection of transcendence, their rejection of any doctrine of original sin. And yet, individuals today, just like every generation before them, struggle with profound feelings of guilt and shame when the doors are closed and they're left alone. Where do these feelings of guilt and shame come from? Well, I'm sure you know there's a hundred answers that some would love to give. I mean, just imagine not being fooled by misplaced trust for a moment in our own righteousness, but being clear on the issue of our own inner corruption that finds healing and cleansing at the hands of our gracious God alone. I mean, how would you feel if I told you that you could actually find healing for your undeniable sense of guilt, not in your good works, not in your works of righteousness, not in a protocol put forth to you by the popular philosophers of today that call you to hate yourself, but instead, what if I could tell, point you to healing that you could find real rest and acceptance in that transcends all understanding? I mean, I would be interested in that for my own soul. I hope that you would be. I mean, here are some options today. We could psychologize our issues. You know, I have a complex. My parents didn't love me enough. I'm a victim. I have self-esteem issues. But there's no escaping the fact that we all still have a sense of our own personal guilt. You can suppress the issue altogether. And that's what I mean. That's so one thing we could do is psychology. So second option, maybe we could suppress the issue altogether, distract ourselves with food and drink and work and entertainment and never and do everything we can to suppress the, the, the feelings of guilt that we face every day. Or. We could go to the great physician and maker of heaven and earth, hear the truth we all need to hear and be healed. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. Page 893-894 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. And if you don't have a Bible, it'd be helpful to keep that open. So as I refer to the passage throughout the sermon, you will be able to follow along with the points of the, of the text, the points of the sermon. 893-894 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. Mark's gospel is like a docudrama, a collection of clips of typical or extraordinary events in the, in the hero's life, snatches of speeches and conversations, overviews, close-ups, crowd scenes, and encounters with individuals. It is a fascinating read. And the more you read it, you realize how brilliant it is. And Mark wants, wants us to know where Jesus is, the kingdom of God is. The reign of God is breaking in through the person and power of Jesus. Jesus has come to replace the old covenant shadows with, the, with fulfillment in himself. He is the replacement and fulfillment of sonship that Israel and Adam failed to be. He is forming in himself not merely a new nation, a new Israel, but a new humanity. Back up further, he goes, well, he's forming a whole new humanity in himself. Jesus is leading the new exodus prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In every way, Jesus is unlike anyone else. He is the God-man, truly God and truly man. God's people from this point on will be identified by their relationship with him. True people of God, true Israel of God, true new humanity are, have to be in Christ Jesus. Let's look at the text now. Not all are happy about this. Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? 
He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corbin as an offering devoted to God. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. The things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of, a, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. This is God's word. Amen. This is Jesus' Jesus's longest conflict speech in the Gospel of Mark. For the first time, he publicly denounces Jerusalem's teachers. By the way, we, we know they're plotting to kill him already. What befuddles them? What befuddles the people of Israel at that time? Again and again, Mark wants to see their, their hearts are not right. It's an inside problem, not an outside one dealt with by ritual hand-washing traditions. The cleanliness laws of the old covenant, particularly the washing ones, were given to the priests. And they were tutorial to help teach a theological lesson to the priests and to the people who knew about it, that God's, God is holy and hearts need to be clean and sinners must be cleansed of their sins. Now, sadly, those laws that were given to the priest have been wrongly imposed on everyone and they have morphed into something else altogether. And the problem here is that the source of the uncleanliness was not the outside. This passage is a humbling picture of what human nature is capable of doing in religiosity. Humanity, if you don't know it, is naturally religious, naturally pagan, even in atheism. To quote the great Princeton theologian and founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, J. Gresham Machen, he said, Paganism is the view of life which finds the highest goal of human existence in the healthy and harmonious and joyous development of existing human faculties. Paganism is optimistic with regard to unaided human nature, whereas Christianity is the religion of the broken heart. End quote. Here's the central point if you're taking notes. We all tend to trust in our own righteousness. We all tend to trust in our own righteousness. Instead, comma, instead, comma, let us see how corrupted by sin we are. Let us see how corrupted by sin we are and trust in Christ alone. And trust in Christ alone. The text gives us three big heart problems. And so that's how I'm going to arrange the sermon this morning. Heart problem number one, a farness from God a farness from God, verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7, a farness from God. It's the first heart problem. Verse 6 really nails it down. The heart, the, the center of who we are in truth is far from God. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. No, not one. All this religious practice and had ironically separated people from God. God is not obligated to our works. 
He redeems sinners according to his saving grace. And friends, it is the man who has been accepted by God's grace who devotes the rest of his life to pleasing, to be pleasing to him. It's the man who's been accepted by God's grace who devotes the rest of his life to pleasing him. Not the other way around. We don't do those things to be accepted by God. Obligating him to be good to us. Sinclair Ferguson put it, the man who has no assurance that he is accepted by God's grace will always live a lie, pretending to be better than he is, either before God or before men. That's the scene here. We know that the religious elite of Jerusalem have been scheming about how to kill Jesus, but first they must discredit him. You understand that's part of the plan. They've got to discredit him, and, the, and then no one will care if he's murdered. And they accuse the disciples and therefore, and therefore Jesus of not being serious about holiness because they do not follow the tradition. It's critical that Mark points that out there. Tradition of hand washing, hand baptism. It's a baptizo where the pouring over, washing uh, of, the, of the elders, the, of the Jewish uh, elite. And so, friends, as we consider this point today, you, you and I may need to think about this. We may be a legalist. For example, do we add shame to other people's lives or do we set them free in the gospel? Do we ourselves want loads of grace for our sin struggles and our pains and our our weaknesses, but we have little grace for those who we think should just get in step with us? Heaven forbid that their struggle is different than ours. Do we cultivate trust with our children, parents, or do we try to control them with guilt? Do we release others who are younger in the faith or do we try to saddle them with our traditions? Do you find sin in other people's lives and go after them for it? Friends, this passage is here for our sobriety. This is a cup of coffee to the heart. It's a sobering passage. First sub point here, look out when self becomes the standard. Look out. When self becomes the standard. Verses 1 through 5, where I'm going to focus. Mark explains for the reader that the tradition spoken of here is not that of the Old Testament, but rather the Jewish customs in verse 3 and 4. And Jesus' answer undermines the foundation of their question by rejecting the validity of their tradition. And we need to note the distinction between tradition and traditionalism, right? Tradition is a good thing and, and, and in many ways a necessary part of life. We would be much the poorer without wisdom of the ages than traditions of those who went before us. The problem is when it becomes traditionalism, elevating human traditions to the same level of God's law, of God's word. I think you're following me, right? So whenever the Jews practiced these washings, they declared that they were special and that other people were unclean. In short, the man who paid most rigid attention to the external observances of human invention was reckoned the holiest man. We would give him a high scorecard, maybe, in those circles. And these traditions, not the law, rested on a misunderstanding that uncleanness is outside of a person who would otherwise be clean on the inside. Things have gone off the rails, haven't they? These washings conveyed a wrong idea of the nature of sin and personal holiness. Now, to be clear, the desire to feel clean is something we can all relate to, right? We want to feel clean. Well, maybe when we're, you know, maybe the boys who play outside all the time, they're not so much focused on that. But uh, as adults, as, as human beings, there's a desire inwardly, all of us, to feel clean. It's easy to think that God will like me if I, if say I, I'm clean and, and, and look clean and, and do all these uh, outward things. Maybe God will like me more if I perform all these particular things and I will like myself. But that doesn't, that, but that sense of unimportance, that sense of unclean, uncleanness will go away if we keep chasing after it. It won't go away. It stays. Because our works cannot deal with the inside. It cannot clean up the inside. If a group believes God favors them because of their particularly true doctrine, 
their ways of worship, their ethical behaviors, their attitude towards those without, without those things, as you can see right here with the Pharisees and the scribes, can become hostile. Their self-righteousness hides under the claim that they are only opposing the enemies of God. It's really about them. We can all be good at forgiving someone who has the same struggles that we have. I naturally can just, oh, I can sympathize. You know what I'm talking about? We can, we can be good at forgiving someone who has the same struggles we have, like, like a bad temper. But we can be quick to hold things against those we believe are worse than us or less than us in some way. And we can view ourselves as having a spotless record of doing good and of good doing then give us the right and that can give us the right to be highly offended. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free. So just to be clear, whoever we, whatever we think of, maybe we're, you know, the tendency in human in humans is this: is like we can sit in a sermon and think, "Man, I wish so and so was here to hear that today." We need to all hear this today. There is no, there is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty of guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even even that crowd, that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this, this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God, anti-God state of mind, In quote. Mr. Lewis is meddling. He's getting in our business right there. There's nothing wrong, friends, with good standards. But when we claim that such standards are God's standards for righteousness and are, even worse, necessary for salvation, we have stumbled over into believing our obedience earns God's favor. And on a deeper level, isn't it true that we all have a profound, inescapable sense that if we were examined, we'd be rejected? I mean, isn't there a desire when we're by ourselves to control what people know about us through just photoshopping our lives. Deep down, we can feel that we aren't acceptable, that we have to prove ourselves and other people that we're worthy, that we're lovable, that we're valuable. Friends, we need to move off of that and think about what God says. Remove ourselves as the standard and make God... And know that God, in truth, is the standard. He is our maker, and he's given us all dignity, worth, and value. And he has sent his son for any and all who repent and believe. Second subpoint: pay attention to where hypocrisy is the real practice. Pay attention to where hypocrisy is the real practice. Verses 6 and 7. Note how Jesus calls them hypocrites or play actors, pretenders. He quotes from Isaiah 29, defining what a hypocrite was, focused on who had come to worship, but their hearts were left at home, you could say. You ever come to church and left your heart at home? It's serious in God's sight if our hearts are far away, farness from God. So let's let's think about this together. Let's look at our hearts more carefully this morning. Are you diligent in prayer, but there's no wonder or awe or intimacy or delight in your conversations with God right now in prayer time? Are we more about our reputation than our character? You know, that creates that, just that, just that pursuit right there will make you an anxious person. Are we more about our reputation than our character? 
Are we good at disciplines and practices, but our hearts are distant from God because we're, we're too busy thinking too highly of ourselves? Are you busy taking care of folks who, who have needs that you can help and you feel superior helping those, but don't, and, 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 and you feel superior to those who don't serve behind the scenes like you do? Friends, your heart is, you're doing, you're doing, you're going through the motions, you're serving, but your heart is far from God. Do we stress our virtues about how much we do that is good while pointing out others' sins? Our hearts are far from God. Lord, give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. We cannot do this heart work. Only you can. The Old Testament made it clear. Deuteronomy 6.5, you've probably memorized it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Repeatedly, Moses preached to them the law at the end of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy that their hearts would be circumcised, changed, and marked. Jesus wasn't against all tradition, friends, but he was against those who made their tradition as important, if not important, than, more important than God's word. They're to be done from the heart. Uh, speaking of traditions, good traditions should shine a spotlight on the gospel. They should shine a spotlight on God's word. Good traditions reinforce God's word. They don't try to rise to the same level of God's word. For example, as a church, reading our church covenant before the Lord's Supper is a way we highlight the one another commands and the call to be salt and light. Don't mistake it for anything else. It's for that purpose, to highlight the promises we made to love one another and to be holy witnesses as, as a local church. Holding a PM service is how we highlight the Lord's Day, prayer and fellowship in the gospel. Our traditions, our confessions of faith, our bylaws are not more important than God's word. They should certainly highlight and point to God's word. And going through the motions, friends, as we can see, and not dealing with our hearts is serious. Tim Keller asked, do you have an undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances, hold grudges long, and bitterly look down at people who are different? Do you experience life as a joyless and crushing drudgery, having little intimacy and joy in your prayer life? Do you have deep insecurity that makes you overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others? Ouch. Those are good questions. All of us are born estranged from God, beloved. The Bible tells us that. But we can add to that distance. We can make it worse by making ourselves the standard and living in hypocrisy, hardening our own hearts. We need Jesus. We need the work of the Spirit. We need to ask the Father to change our hearts. We all tend to trust in our own righteousness. Instead, let us see how corrupted by sin we are and trust in Christ alone. Number two, problem number two, heart problem number two, invalidating God's commands. Invalidating God's commands. Verses 8 through 13 is the section we are in here. Invalidating God's commands. First subpoint: pay attention to where you substitute your desire over God's word. Pay attention to where you substitute your desire, or desires, you can put an S on that, over God's word. Verses 8 and 9, of course, help us see this. Look at the progression. They abandon God's word. You can see in the text or reject it. Maybe your, your translation says reject it. They reject it in their hearts and their practices nullify. Just think of a big, a big bottle of white out and just widen, you know, taking, taking those things out, those clear things of God's word out. They nullify God's word. Verse 9. And people who revere man-made traditions above the word of God eventually lose the power of God's word in their lives. You know that, right? This is not a good trajectory. It's like it's going down. There's a, they're in trouble because the more and more you, the more man-made traditions and self-righteousness and our works become the, the primary focus. Well, God's word loses its primacy and power in our lives. They invalidate, reject and nullify the word. There's nothing too small, trifling, or irrational for people once they turn their back on God's word. There are gatherings today, and the building says church on it, in which the scriptures are read, hardly read, if not read, they're not read at all, 
the gospel not preached and that now have fallen into barrenness and decay and the people are living like the book of Judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And the gospel has been changed. We all can in reality reject plain commands, beloved, from God's word because we don't want to do what it says sometimes. In our impulses, the flesh, the sinful impulse, we don't want to hear about the call to give. What? I don't want to hear about attendant faithfully, to care for those in need, to not be gluttonous, to submit to a husband, to love my wife, to submit to the elders, to obey our parents. Pick your command. People don't want to hear that. That's what God's word teaches. Friends, our desires can quickly supplant the word if we're not careful, which brings up the natural progression. Second subpoint. Be honest where you can manipulate God's word for personal advantage. Be careful where you can manipulate God's word for personal advantage. Verses 10 through 13. You mix a strong desire with a displacing of the word and what you get next is a logic that justifies other sins. In verse 11, he, Jesus pits the rabbi's teaching rightly against the word of God. The custom of Corban, you see there in the text, allowed a person to devote all his material goods to the Lord. Sounds, sounds good so far, right? The rabbis, though, shamefully justify this practice to excuse people not to take care of their aging parents financially because it, as you would imagine, it benefited the religious elite. You cannot care for your parents. You've already made an oath over here to donate it to us. Get the sense here? And they manipulate people's minds. Well, he made a vow. He has to honor that vow. At the violation of the clear command, honor your father and your mother. Essentially, they reason, well, you cannot break a vow you make to give your inheritance to the minister of the temple. And so, therefore, you can't spend it now on caring for your aging parents. The money is spoken for. It was wicked to not take care of the ones who had taken care of them when they were young and little, desperate and needy. It's just a, this is just a religious way to dress up greed for everybody involved. The practice was one many that could be used to adhere to the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit of the law. And Jesus saw the lesser command of promises or vows being used to manipulate the call to honor parents. You know, I'll just pause here and say one of my biggest problems, and yours too, with the Vatican is the way they ignore plain teaching like salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the merits of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone revealed in Scripture alone. But they add something to all those points. And specifically, they teach also if a child has vowed a, mon- uh, a life, um, uh, made the, uh, the monastic vow, Unto the priesthood, he is exempted from duty to parents. Did you know that? Very similar, isn't it? Friends, people just like you and me can quickly get, I would would say it like this, tricksy with the Bible. We can get tricksy with the Bible for our own personal feelings. We can be good at taking not so clear scriptures to undercut clear scriptures if we are not careful. Name your topic. Pastor Garrett, would you name some? I will. Gossip. We can find a way to to justify that. Forbearing with others. Marriage roles. Church commitments. Work. Stewardship. Submitting to authorities. Entertainment. Beloved, we can justify so quickly our Christian liberties to watch certain things, to watch certain things in our home, behave certain ways, and feel good about it all while blowing by plain Scripture. I personally admit that I have an aversion to doing hard things. There's some things I don't like to do. How about you? How about you? Friends, let us all be all the more, more careful that we are coming before the Lord with a clean and pure heart. That we're not allowing ourselves to justify things that God's word would plainly forbid us to do. We will give an account. 
every one of us. We all tend to trust in our own righteousness. Instead, let us see how corrupted by sin we are and trust in Christ alone. Heart problem number three. Last one. Misunderstanding defilement. Misunderstanding defilement. Verses 14 through 23. Look at the text. Jesus calls everybody around him. He gives a brief parable and then goes on to explain it to the disciples, to those who want to know more. That's his pattern. You know, Jesus would drop those little parable bombs and walk away, and whoever would come and listen, the disciples, that he would explain it. First sub-point. Defilement has a root. Defilement has a root. Verses 14 through 20. His language is quite graphic here. I encourage you today, I don't, I'd never commend this translation because it's super loose. But it was interesting, the message, how it translated this section. I think they got the, the, the idea, the parable right here. But look at the, it's a, it's a graphic illustration. Whether you eat clean or unclean food, it goes into the mouth, down to the stomach, and then literally out into the latrine. It never gets into the heart, not the physical heart. He's talking about the seat of the will, the seat of who the person is. Physical food can't corrupt that. It's already corrupted. Nothing that comes from, comes in from outside makes us unclean. Verse 15 is the heart of his teaching. A person is defiled by what comes out, not what goes in. Food ends up in the stomach, but sin, sin begins in the heart. Sin remains in us and produces defilement and death. The problem of the defiled human heart is much deeper and more serious than mere ceremonial impurity. How many times did we see in Isaiah or read through Deuteronomy God's concern for the heart? Ceremonial uncleanliness is a real symbol. Yes, but it's just that. In verse 17, we see the disciples' heart. They still don't understand and still have no possession of true faith yet. They're being brought along. They're coming along. And on Easter morning, they're going to know it all. They're going to know a lot more. And then especially when he reappears to them and shows them everything from the Old Testament, teaches them he's the fulfillment. But even here, God, Jesus is still bringing them along. It takes time to make disciples, doesn't it? Like most, you know, like most of the Jews of their time, they, they, they thought sin, uh, they thought of sin of a, like, like, like this, like, a, like sort of a germ. Not to worry any germaphobes out in the room right now. But sin is more serious than that. They thought of it as a germ, an infection caught by contact with others outside. You know, you see that in our own country too. We, there, it's, it's good and right for parents to make good decisions on the development of their children. That is true. Society... Bad teachings, all those things can be bad. What we, what we watch, all of those things, I am never going to undermine that importance. But you need to couple that with the fact that not only do, do, do the little ones have to deal with what's on the outside, they have to deal with what's already inside of them naturally. I've never had to teach my children how to disobey. And my parents never had to teach me. It's amazing. I never had to be taught how to lie. It was just naturally there. Jesus says we cannot avoid sin by avoiding infection from others. So we can, we can square off our lives as much as we want to. We can become full-blown monks, but we haven't solved the problem. The heart needs radical spiritual surgery. And Jesus is only saying what the prophets all the way back to Moses said. The Bible is clear we need a changed nature, beloved. We need the baptism not of ceremonies, but of the Holy Spirit. We need to be born again. We need our eyes opened and our wills changed by the grace of the Holy Spirit. What's really wrong with the world? Jesus is saying, we are what's wrong with the world. It's what comes out from the inside. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. It is sin. It's our own rebellion. My old pastor, Dr. Jerry Vines, used to say this often. In his preaching, man's opinion of sin and God's opinion are different. 
Man says that sin is an accident. God says it's an abomination. Man says sin is blunder. God says it's blindness. Man says it's a chance. God says it's a choice. Man says it's a defect. God says it's a disease. Man says it's an error. God says it's enmity. Man says it's failure. God says it's fatality. Man says that sin is just a trifle. God says it's a tragedy. Man says that it is a weakness. God says it is wickedness. Amen. He's right. Defilement has a root. Time after time, the Bible shows us the world is not divided into the good guys and the bad guys. Given our sin and self-centeredness, we all are part in what makes the world a miserable, broken place. We've all none loved God like we should. We have all failed to do others the good we should have done them. We have all harmed someone in word, thought, or deed. And God sees it all. Yet we're still trying to address the sense of uncleanness through external measures. Let's clean up the cup. Let's clean up the outside. That'll solve it. Trying to do something that Jesus says is basically impossible. You never feel good enough. And when something goes wrong in your life, after you live your life based on, I've checked all these boxes, I served like this, I did all these things, and when something goes wrong in our life, we immediately be thro- we're thrown into doubt. I thought I was living a good enough life. When did God, why did God let this happen to me? And we've had the wrong basis for so long. Religion doesn't get rid of self-justification, the self-centeredness, the self-absorption, At all. It doesn't strengthen and change the heart. It's, again, you're approaching outside in. You need to go inside out. Friends, do not obey and do good things so that God will see you're worthy and save you. That's a rejection of the gospel. And it's not addressing the root problem. Get this, fellowship with God is not interrupted by unclean hands or foods that we eat. It's interrupted because of sin. An evil action begins with a single thought. Allowing our minds to dwell on sin leads to sin. We dwell on sin and then we act in sin. Verse 19 is it's just one of those. Mark throws these little grenades in. And if you go by it too quickly, you'll miss it. That was explosive. Verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. You could be like, oh, I could be reading. It just, that hit the brakes. What? This is an amazing statement. Again, this is him looking back. This is Peter talking to Mark, reflecting back. It was right then. We missed it. Jesus declared all foods clean. The ceremonial laws in Leviticus 11 distinguish between clean and unclean foods to instill an awareness of God, to tutor God's people on His holiness, on the reality of sin visually as a a barrier to fellowship with God. The old covenant law was never meant to be a permanent fixture. It was a teacher. It was a tutor leading up to Christ. Jesus, having all authority, declared all foods clean. This is something, friends, only God has the authority to do. Jesus is God. He says, I... I called the world into being. I called the storm to a halt. I called the girl back from death. And I call all foods clean. They're fulfilled in him. You know, Peter didn't grasp this all the way until Acts 10, by the way. Maybe you remember Acts 10, that vision he was given. And he looks back here afresh. I like to have been there when Peter was talking with Mark. (laughs) He did it right there. I missed it. He did it back then. They failed to grasp this when Jesus was, had originally uttered it. He has the power, friends. What that means is he has the power to make sinners clean. He makes sinners clean actually by his perfect life, death, and resurrection. God unites his people to the righteousness and substitution of Jesus through believing upon him alone for salvation from God's wrath. That's what makes the gospel such wonderful news. We are unclean. Desperately wicked before God. Worse, we are far worse than we could possibly imagine. Even after preaching this long on the doctrine of sin, we still don't see how deep the sin is. But God, as, as wicked as we are, as unimaginable at times how sinful we are, God is more, all the more gloriously loving. 
and saving and gracious to any sinner who repents and believes. If you put your trust in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God will justify you. He'll declare you righteous because of what Jesus has done. He'll robe you in the righteousness of Jesus. And he'll cleanse your conscience by the grace of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's, it's empowering to know I stand forgiven. I'm encouraged to walk in obedience. I'm not walking in obedience so that I would earn his forgiveness. I have been given forgiveness and I want to serve and please him. I'm walking now from the standpoint of justification, sanctified in, in Jesus Christ by the grace of the Spirit. Whenever you're struggling with obedience, go back to the cross. Lean into there. Remember that Jesus has paid for your past, your present, and your future sins. And he wants you to live for him from that standpoint, never from the standpoint of trying to earn your favor with him. Otherwise, you nullify not just the word, you nullify the work of Jesus in your heart. If you really believe Jesus paid it all, that's how you will approach it. Mark is doing more in this passage than defending the Christian claim that the Old Testament dietary laws are not binding on believers. He's announcing also the original audience who was primarily Gentile who received Mark's gospel would have gotten this. He's announcing that Gentiles are no longer to be considered unclean because of Jesus. That's, that's earth moving. God's salvation is for all people everywhere. Gentiles no longer need to become Jews in the old covenant sense. No, all who put their trust in Christ are true children of Abraham by faith. True Israel is in Christ where our hearts are sealed and are sealed and marked with the Holy Spirit. Abraham's true children are those who are in Christ Jesus. Read Galatians. Read Romans. Second subpoint. So we saw that defilement has a root. Defilement will bear fruit. Still uncertain on the doctrine of sin. Defilement will bear fruit. 21 through 23. He lists several fruits that reveal internal defilement. The first seven are plural and indicate repeated acts. Let's just walk through them briefly. Evil thoughts, design, that's where, that's where things are designed and attitudes are, are, that lead to action. Starts in the heart. Sexual immoralities. It's not because, it's not primarily because, you know, somebody brought something your way. It starts in the heart. All illicit sexual practices outside of God's design in marriage. Theft encompasses all stealing and cheating. Murder, wicked and unjust killing, taking of life. Friends, that includes abortion. Adulteries, breaking the marriage covenant and immorality. It too, like all others here, starts in the heart. Evil actions, a term for maliciousness that seeks to involve others. The last, the last six evils are all singular, singular include indicating attitudes. Envy refers to jealousy, covetousness, a, a, a begrudging attitude, constantly sizing someone up. Slander refers to blaspheming God and others. And the word pride here refers to exalting oneself above others. That's all, again, friends, natural to us. Foolishness is the lack of moral judgment. This is the person who has no interest in God. This is, the, this is really just a way to summarize the world. Friends, only deep and radical cleansing performed by God himself can remove such intrinsic defilement. No ceremony. I can't pronounce anything over you. No practice you could pursue today could rid the, your heart of this defilement. Only Jesus can do it. When it comes to ourselves or raising our children, we need to recognize there is a heart problem. Why'd you do that, Johnny? Well, go to the mirror and talk to yourself. Why'd you do that? And name your name. It starts right here. We all live from the heart. Where do our evil words, thoughts, and deeds come from? The heart, and only God can change it. You know, non-Christians can be taught to conform, friends, to a morally acceptable standard. Right? Non-Christians can be taught to conform to a morally acceptable standard. But that doesn't deal with the heart. Our offenses are against God. 
and they start in our hearts. And God desires total reconciliation with us through Jesus Christ our Lord. You want help? You weigh down in your sin and guilt? Come to Christ. Don't delay. Repent and put your trust in Jesus. He'll save you. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you. Come to Christ. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus. You're my only hope. I cling to you alone. Come to Christ. If you want to talk more about that after the service, please see me afterwards. I'd love to follow up with you and talk to you how you can know forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. I, we should conclude. Are we going to psychologize our issues by blaming our problems solely on external circumstances? I'm not saying factors don't impact us, beloved, but we still have to confront our own hearts. I can't answer for what other people do, but I will give an answer for myself. Are we going to suppress the issues altogether and distract ourselves with the pleasures of this world? Are we going to, or are we going to go to the great physician and maker and hear the truth we all need to hear? That we need Christ and we need new hearts. It's often popularly expressed. I want you to pay attention to this, this saying. God has done his part. Now it's up to you to do your part. In this line of thinking, one's good doing is the condition of salvation. It's not the fruit of the free saving grace of God. The sovereignly imparted grace God gives to his people, his chosen people. We don't, there's, it's, it's not up to us. We need total grace from God. We need him to work in us and change us. We need more than an outward cleanup. We need to be born again with a heart that's inclined to believe the gospel. So let us not come before God with delusions of our own goodness. Let's come just as we are, without one plea, waiting not to rid our souls of just one dark blot. No, completely dependent on God's grace. Come to the one whose blood can truly cleanse and whose spirit washes us in regeneration. Let's come to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are pierced by your word. We ask for more of it, more of the work of the Spirit. Transform our wills and our hearts, our affections to you. Cause us to, Lord, trust in you and to live our life of obedience from your grace in the confidence that we stand justified in Jesus alone. Encourage us, Lord. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.